everybody, and welcome to Adjusted. I'm your host, Greg Hamlin, coming at you from Sweet Home, Alabama, and Berkeley Industrial Comp. And I'm excited to share with you this special rebroadcast. This is probably the most famous person I've interviewed so far on the podcast. I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Michael Bodden, who has his own HBO special on forensics and is one of the most renowned people when it comes to autopsies. And so it was very, very interesting to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Bodden about this topic in workers' compensation. And I think we learned some things that really I didn't know before we did this interview. I will say he was one of the most interesting people we've interviewed just because of the many stories he shared about the people that he has investigated from the O.J. Simpson trial to the czars of of Russia, and even more recently, Epstein. Dr. Baden is very, very well known for being one of the most renowned experts when it comes to understanding causation on autopsies. So hope you enjoy this one. This was probably one of the most fun ones that we did, and we did it in the middle of the pandemic. So you'll hear him talk about that as well. So it's kind of a time capsule. Hope you enjoy. to Adjusted, a podcast for workers' compensation enthusiasts. I'm your host, Greg Hamlin, coming at you from Sweet Home, Alabama and Berkeley Industrial Comp. And with me is my co-host, Claire Musselman, coming at you from the warm tundra known as Des Moines, Iowa, as we enter our snowy winter season this fall slash winter. (laughs) And we also have our special guest with us today, Dr. Michael Bodden, a forensic pathologist. So we're excited to have him with us today. If you want to say hi to everybody. Hi, I'm coming to you from the very cold Catskill uh, Mountain region, sheltering a few miles from New York City, where the temperature now here is 32 degrees. But crisp (laughs) and crisp and uh, uh, full of oxygen and no coronaviruses. That's great. Well, we are excited to have you with us, Dr. Baden. Uh, I'm probably a little too excited. I, I went to Indiana University as a criminal justice major, so I'm excited to have the chance to interview you today and talk about our topic, which is causation related to workers' compensation. And I thought it would be helpful for people if we started by having you share how you ended up in forensics. That seems like a little bit of an unusual field, and I'm curious how you, how you got there. Was this a childhood dream? No, it's interesting uh, that uh, there are about close to a million uh, physicians in the United States, and uh, perhaps there are 400 who do forensic pathology which is what I do. It's despite it being popular in some of the pre, uh, television programs, it's not a popular specialty for uh, medical students and physicians. Uh, in in part because it requires usually working for government, and most doctors don't want to work for government unless they have to, and the the uh, government. Uh, fee scales are much less than uh, in private practice. But also, it, as you may have seen, when uh, most doctors make mistakes, as you uh, in your business may uh, see not too uncommonly, um, 
the insurance companies pay for it. When uh, a, a medical examiner, a forensic pathologist makes a mistake, it's often on the front page of the uh, newspapers, and doctors don't like that. But whatever the reason, whatever the reason, uh, there are, it's one of the smallest specialties in medicine, pathology, you know, finding out what's wrong with the body is is uh, a reasonable specialty. There are about 20, 30,000 uh, board certified pathologists in this country. But to be a forensic pathologist, a medical examiner, as, as, as I've become, uh, requires first becoming uh, board certified in pathology, and there's a subspecialty in pathology uh, that deals with forensic pathology, medical legal issues that come out of pathological uh, investigation, uh, 91, 92% of deaths that occur in the United States are from natural causes. And that's the expertise of the hospital pathologist. About 6% of the uh, deaths in the country uh, are either, are not natural. Accident, suicide, homicide, drug overdose uh, fall in that category. And that goes into the expertise of uh, doctors who specialize in unnatural death rather than uh, natural diseases like heart disease and cancer. So um, that's how we become forensic pathologists. Now, very few uh, medical students, when I was uh, a student, uh, and even now, despite the interest in forensic pathology from Quincy and uh, various television programs, decide to study and go into forensic pathology. And uh, that's especially that goes into, uh, could the cause of death be unnatural? If it's a not natural cause of death, that's the expertise of the forensic pathology uh, pathologist. And in the death certificate, regular doctors, internists and pathologists are only allowed to issue death certificates if the cause of death is natural. If the cause of death is not natural, that requires a special uh, coroner or medical examiner investigation. And um, the difference is that um, we inherited the coroner system from England back in the 1600s, who are elected officials who look into death, usually not physicians. They're, they're public officials who will hire a physician if there's a uh, uh, inquiry into why somebody died. The forensic pathologist more recently has developed from the coroner system uh, into a medical examiner system. A medical examiner is usually a physician uh, who has uh, uh, knowledge about unnatural death. Uh, it doesn't have to be a forensic pathologist, but a forensic pathologist is necessary to do the autopsies if an autopsy is necessary. So we have right now, to answer your question, uh, about half the counties in the United States are coroner counties and about half are medical examiner counties. And you have to deal with both. Uh, the coroner makes a decision with the knowledge that he or she has to run for office. They're elected officials, and that becomes an issue. Medical examiners are usually appointed by government 
or come from a civil service uh, system uh, and have a little bit of independence, although more and more there's uh, it seems to be biases toward uh, police work. Uh, when the medic originally the medical examiners are a very independent uh, group of people, now they tend to be more biased toward the people we work with all the time, which are prosecutors and and police. And this comes up not in the normal causes of death, but when a death occurs when uh, during a police uh, uh, interaction, and uh, issues come up that uh, can get. Uh, medical examiners and coroners into trouble with the press. Sure. So with that, um, Dr. Baden, would you, can you tell us um, any of the high-profile cases that you have reviewed? Well, the, the high-profile cases, uh, uh, I was, I was uh, way back uh, in my uh, youth, I was uh, head of the uh, Select Committee on Assassinations that looked into uh, the death of President John F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King for the U.S. Congress uh, Select Committee on Assassinations that was set up because of issues and um, disagreements with the Warren Commission that initially looked into uh, President Kennedy's death and decided that Leah Harvey Oswald did it. And a lot of people said that's not true. This is the, it was the CIA, it was Russia or something. And uh, when they set up a special uh, commission, this is in the 1970s, before some of you uh, people were going to school, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which uh, they, that uh, so that was uh, I was involved with. I was the chairman of that uh, commission in looking into the cause of death of President Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Been involved with. Uh, Going to Russia to to review the the deaths of the Romanov family, Alexander, uh, Nicholas, uh, when there were uh, disputes as to uh, how they they had been secretly buried and it wasn't clear whether they were the right people and what the cause of death were. I was reading a few years ago over in Poland examining the deaths of uh, the president uh, and his wife uh, of Poland who died in an airplane crash in Russia. And there was an issue as to whether or not the Russian government had killed uh, the president of uh, Poland and 90 generals and other people who were on the same trip. But more more commonly, I've been involved with uh, people like uh, the John Belushi death with Marlon Brando's investigation into his son's death. Uh, into recently, uh, the um, Deaths of civil rights people, uh, Medgar Evers, Eric uh, uh, Garner, George Floyd, who died recently. And uh, as as uh, the country and the world becomes more involved in the uh, civil justice, criminal justice systems and realize that there are a lot of uh, things that have to be corrected, uh, so uh, medical examiners have gotten more involved into determining the accuracy of causes of death. That's that's fascinating. I know, um, I know when we think about injuries and in all of the cases that you mentioned, and, and I know we've sent you some as well, the big question is what was the cause? And I think that's where a lot of the debate is around um, when it comes to 
these bigger cases. But on the work comp side, we sometimes have issues too, where we have an, a, a fatality. I can think of several that we've seen and some that you've reviewed where we may have an individual who passes away while they're driving. And there's the question of, well, what caused that? Was it the car accident? Was it something else? And how do we get to the bottom of that? Um, what are some of the things that you look at when you have a case like that to try to figure out what the cause was for the death? Yeah, uh, that's interesting that you uh, that you uh, raise that because a lot of uh, I, I don't specialize in uh, workers' comp cases. For example, I, as a medical examiner, I do whatever winds up on the autopsy table, uh, and it turns out that the the worker comp cases I get tend to be people who are working for a company, uh, driving a vehicle and uh, the vehicle gets into an accident uh, or strikes somebody and there's a lawsuit involving workers comp the 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 way uh, we make diagnoses causation has to do with correlating what autopsy findings are if there are autopsies done most of the time that when deaths occur in vehicular situations uh, an autopsy will be done either by the medical examiner or a coroner uh, and correlating the the uh, abnormalities present in the body, the injuries to the body, uh, with the circumstances of what happened, with the toxicology results, and with whatever medical history may be pertinent. Now, pertinent medical history would include whatever medical history was. This, per this person have epilepsy and have uh, periods of. Uh, loss of consciousness, of seizures, was this decedent uh, problem with drugs or alcohol, which has to then be looked into more carefully as to um, complicating the causes of death. Or if, they per if the person, um, the individual is injured but winds up in a hospital and dies a week later, a month later, or even years later, whether or not the initial injury, be it at work uh, uh, where uh, a brick falls on uh, on his head or driving a car, whether that is uh, responsible for the death or not. And that can get uh, uh, difficult at times because uh, a recent case uh, I had what had to do with somebody who uh, was injured at work when he was in his 20s and uh, wound up dying about 20 years later in his 40s uh, of severe uh, liver decompensation due to alcoholism. And the issue had come up was his alcoholism caused by uh, the accident uh, which can be very uh, difficult, uh, especially with, for you guys, because I found out when uh, you have to make quick, pretty quick decisions, because if you delay a decision, there can be um, uh, uh, financial consequences, whereas for medical examiners and coroners, uh, we could wait a few years, <laughs> and it, it isn't, uh, it, you know, until we get more information. But part of the information is, was this person an alcoholic before the accident, before the accident, often we have to wait for um, 
deposition testimony uh, to find out if the family is reluctant to give that history right away. Uh, and if a legal suit is started, then we get involved with the legal suit years later as to causation, causation of the cause of death and causation whether the whether he died of the alcoholism and causation as to whether the alcoholism was triggered by uh, a, an accident that occurred uh, five or 10 or 20 years earlier. Uh, so we need a lot of information in cases where the deaths occur years later. And even in, I remember in New York City, when I was in New York City a number of times, there were uh, cases of people injured in accidents with fractures who were alive, fractures of arms or in accidents. And um, I would have to, as the medical examiner, would have to go back and find out, uh, was this... Uh, elbow fracture uh, that we see for the first time, you know, healed up. Did he have it before the accident occurred? Because in New York City, we've had, we have a bus, uh, uh, you know, get into uh, an accident and there were 10 people on the bus and there'll be 25 people who will be uh, submitting uh, claims that they were injured in, in, the, in the bus <laughs> itself. So, uh, uh, we have to, you know, get whatever information we can of the medical history before and then after that incident. But in the normal case that medical examiners get involved with, which uh, is when somebody dies, it's the autopsy findings, the abnormalities that are present, and um, the circumstances of what happened. Now, I, I've been involved with a number of cases where the driver, truck driver, drives off the road and uh, and is found dead in the in the uh, in the uh, in the driver's seat, uh, having bumped into trees and other things. And the issue comes up: Did he die from the injuries that are found? He has a head injury uh, in the truck that's uh, uh, ran into a tree off the road. And to correlate that with why did he go off the road in the first place? See, so if a person is driving along and has pre-existing heart disease, the most common type of uh, pre-existing abnormality that in, in everybody is, is heart disease. About a third or, or almost half people who die, die uh, because of heart disease or with uh, evidence of pre-existing heart disease. And that all depends on the, uh, correlating the circumstances as to how the uh, accident arose, how he went off the road, who the eyewitnesses were, getting, uh, when we can, the ambulance um, records. The ambulance records can be very, very uh, helpful because anybody who, who dies out of a hospital requires EMT is called. EMT has to be called in order to pronounce the person dead, in order to remove the body from the scene. So there are always um, ambulance records uh, available if requested, and they're just a few pages, and they can have a lot of valuable information as to the condition of the body when the body was found, independent of uh, uh, other people who may have seen what was going on 
and uh, had a vested interest in what was going on. So, Dr. Baden, so when we're looking at the pieces of evidence that our adjusters should be looking to obtain for, like, if you're going to do a review, what I hear you saying is that we need records like let's do the pre-existing medical records what current what existed before the accident then what happens from post-injury and then those EMT records like I know we usually get the ambulance bills I'm not so sure we always collect the records so this is a very good EMT record yeah the ambulance record is is a value it's easy to get because every time there's a death outside of a hospital uh, when the, the police have to respond uh, an ambulance has to be called also. And the ambulance uh, people, they're very good in a number of reasons. One, they have a very good timeline. They have an exact timeline on their sheet as to when they were called, when they got to the scene, what the condition of the body was at the scene, and um, the circumstance, some general circumstances. Often uh, the, the time of death is not too clear when the uh, People are making all kinds of phone calls and the 911, but the the EMT is good. And they know out front that their documents are going to be called for because they, they get, their documents re, uh, often have to be gathered together to get the proof of death, to get various, um, to even bury the body. They have to get the show that it's who the death is and how the death occurred. So they're readily available. They're easily obtained, if uh, and they're just uh, three or four pages at most, and contain a lot of information. I think that that would always be a value. The death certificate is a value. You always get the death certificate because the death certificate not only tells you what the medical examiner or coroner gave as the cause of death, uh, but also uh, whether an autopsy was done. So that has to be uh, in most. Uh, there's no standard death certificate, incidentally. There are 50 states, they all have different various forms of death certificates. And even in the same state, like New York City, New York State, there are 62 counties, and each one has their own uh, kind of death certificate, which doesn't mean they're all different because they uh, often they copy each other and uh, as the information on it. But a death certificate is important. It gives the medical examiner information as to that's important because it does have certain information uh, that the um, medical examiner or coroner can use. And sometimes the cause of death on the de uh, on the autopsy is not the same as the cause of death on the death certificate, especially among coroner cases where the person issuing the death certificate is the coroner, not the doctor doing the autopsy. and um, uh, the coroner doesn't always agree with what the, um, the doctor who did the autopsy uh, uh, puts down. One of the big areas where there's the, where the, there's a uh, errors in death certificates is in suicides, uh, because families don't like suicides because there's a stigma to suicide. There also may be financial aspects to it, and especially when a, a person is elected coroner. If there's a situation where where um, the the coroner says some some person committed suicide, that family may never vote for him again. You know that that kind of thing. So and I think it, it, it's tough because if you if all you do is get the death certificate, the death certificate will say 
heart disease, they, especially in older people, every, uh, no autopsy heart disease. There's no medical exam and no investigation to the cause of death necessarily. The doctor, uh, has, however, if it turns out that that individual had taken out a big insurance policy, you know, uh, a few months earlier, even though it may be a very simple, innocent uh, death certificate, it would always be a good uh, reason to look into it further to see whether or not the person had been sick of whatever the cause of death was, uh, whether they'd been depressed, whether they'd been uh, seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, uh, because in, in our country, suicides are tremendously underreported. And um, uh, occasionally that might have some uh, significance as to uh, the accuracy of the uh, death certificate and um, uh, would require more than the superficial, when I say superficial cause of death, uh, as I said, 92% of causes of death are natural. And if a uh, doctor issues a death certificate on somebody with a natural death, cancer, heart disease, and there are no issues about it, that goes through as the cause of death. And it's one of the reasons why vital statistics uh, have become um, less accurate over the past few decades because when I was a resident doctor, uh, the hospitals were required to maintain a 40 or 50 percent autopsy rate in order to be, cert to be uh, certified as a, a, a proper hospital, a teaching hospital because that's how we learned from the mistakes we made uh, taking care of, of a, a patient at Bellevue. We would go to the autopsy and find out what we got right and what we got wrong. And this is a very important uh, but uh, in learning, but it turned out that uh, this uh, started to generate lawsuits by uh, families when they learned that something was missed or something. And they took that requirement away so that presently, instead of 40 or 50 percent autopsy rates in some in some hospitals, it's now below 5 percent or 6 percent of all of everybody dies in the United States, United States, less than 6 percent are autopsied. You see a, a bigger bulk of them because you get involved more with the potentially unnatural deaths. But uh, it's a it's a small um number of autopsies so that the great majority of autopsies uh, of death certificates are based purely on the, what the doctor uh, who is treating the patient puts on the death certificate and he or she invariably will assume uh, that the diagnosis he and she made is the correct diagnosis and put that down and there's this gets especially true if you have any do you do you have dealings with deaths in nursing homes, because in nursing home deaths, and the increasingly number of people are dying in nursing homes now as we get older when we die, uh, maybe what, 18, 20% of people may die in nursing homes nowadays in the United States. They become, uh, it's an area where they're totally not uh, examined by outsiders, because in the nursing homes, there's a doctor who takes care of people in the nursing home, 
oftentimes the doctor is partial owner of the nursing home. And uh, when somebody dies, the cause of death that's put on the uh, on the death certificate is whatever was being treated in the nursing home, uh, cancer, heart disease. And uh, rarely do autopsies get done. The only time autopsies get done is when there are family members around who insist on it because they feel that their uh, loved one uh, was not properly treated at the nursing home. So they make a complaint about it. They may wind up with an autopsy. And and you wind up with a numbers of, increasing numbers of cases of autopsies and legal law, uh, legal um, issues in people who develop bed sores. See, the, the issue of bed sores, especially in nursing home, it means that they're not getting proper uh, medical care and that becomes an issue if somebody is 90 years old in a nursing home dying of cancer and the family finds out that uh, there were severe bed sores, uh, then there'll be uh, legal action perhaps against the nursing home or so. But otherwise, this whole area of deaths in nursing homes is not examined by outside sources like a, a medical examiner or the police, because everything is contained within the nursing home, the treatment, the people who do the treating or the people who issue the death certificates, and uh, oftentimes the people who die or have outlived all their relatives so that nobody else uh, becomes involved in it. So, Dr. Bateman, what happens if we are unable to uh, get an autopsy? So, say we have a family that doesn't want to allow us to do that. Are, so, we really just go off of the death certificate, or are you still able to render any opinions at that point? Or do we have to have that autopsy? Is that a key? No, you don't need to have it. And as I said, most deaths now don't have autopsy done for various reasons. Uh, when a death occurs, technically, the body belongs to the next of kin. The medical examiner or coroner can legally do an autopsy if they uh, order it or get a court order to do it, uh, even if the family disagrees. And this comes up sometimes in religious uh, cases. But um, if the, the coroner or medical examiner decides not to do an autopsy, the only way you can get an, uh, a, a, an autopsy done is by having the next of kin agree or requested it, or and that won't happen if the, if the issues involved are contrary to the interests of the next of kin, you see. So, so it would be very difficult, almost impossible, to get an autopsy done if the next of kin uh, feels that an autopsy will only make my position weaker and uh, I'm not going to do it. However, one can still make uh, diagnoses to get to see if the basis for the cause of death, uh, to, uh, to go over the basis of the cause of death. The basis for the cause of death would have to be either uh, the findings in the hospital, if a person dies in a hospital, or the findings by the treating doctor in his uh, or her um, uh, uh, file, uh, uh, medical file. Uh, so, uh, an outside person can still review all of that material and see whether or not the prior medical history, whether whatever tests were done while the person was dying in, in, in a nursing home or in a hospital or in a doctor's office, support the diagnosis that the, the doctor gave. 
So uh, uh, there has to be, uh, there should be supporting information that the doctor relied upon to make the diagnosis on the death certificate. And so even without an autopsy, that can be done and that can be evaluated uh, as long as you have the, the medical history, the prior medical history, the ambulance findings, the EMT's findings when they, when they got to the, um, to the um, uh, individual who, who had died and the death certificate. They can still be evaluated, and they can still, if this goes into a, le- a court situation, the the judge or the jury uh, can still make a determination whether or not the um, conclusion of the treating doctor or the conclusion of the outside uh, physician investigating it uh, makes more sense. So you don't need an autopsy to, to be able to get an evaluation as to whether the diagnosis is reasonable. Now, on rare occasions, you can get an exhumation. I've had situations where we've gone down and exhumed bodies uh, because issues had come up and found, uh, yes, they could uh, have a stomach full of uh, sleeping pills that caused the death rather than uh, and had no heart disease which was put on the death certificate. Heart disease on the death certificate, no autopsy, body buried, claims made uh, that uh, was sufficiently, uh, had a, a lot of money involved. So the um, an autopsy was ordered, can be ordered by a court, by a judge, uh, overriding the um, family wishes if there's enough information that would indicate it would be helpful. Thank you, that's fascinating, I love that. I was going to say it also sounded like some of the things you mentioned when when people may get it wrong on the cause of death, that there's a lot of interests involved and a lot of political elements that could be behind that. And I think that's something maybe from a work comp standpoint, we need to keep our eyes open for because it sounds like you pointing out the coroner's elected official and there may be different financial interests and there's a lot of things. There may be social issues. Um, stigma issues. There could be lots of different factors that would cause the diagnosis to be wrong. Are there other examples of why you think sometimes um, the death certificate's wrong or the coroner's wrong? Well, I think in general, in general, when there are no autopsies, see, and, and in general now, 95% of deaths, there aren't any autopsies. Uh, very few now uh, in hospitals. Uh, most autopsies now are really done by coroners or medical examiners, uh, not by uh, how, not by the pathologist in the hospital. The easiest way to issue a death certificate is just to say what's popular at the time. You know, heart disease. Uh, it, it used to be in, in going back over at the, the Bellevue Hospital. I remember. We, uh, did a study on in the, in the 30s and 40s, cancer of the stomach was a popular diagnosis. So an awful lot of cases that were not autopsied were signed out as cancer of the stomach, which turned out eventually as the, the, they were wrong diagnoses, but that, that was the popular thing at the time. So uh, the, the, the cause of death in, in this country, when we say a third to a half of people die of heart disease, that's not supported by doing autopsies. That's because most people 
it's true. Most people in this country de develop heart disease to get older and uh, you die of heart. Heart disease is a common cause of death, but it's made even more common because if you don't know what the cause of death is, you just call it heart disease and everybody's happy with that diagnosis. Uh, and um, it, it turns out that if, if there are real issues involved, uh, we have situations where uh, not, re not long ago, uh, a holdup in a, uh, a liquor store. Uh, the um, uh, the guy holding the person up hits him on the top of the head and runs out of the store. The guy goes to the floor and is dead. And uh, the uh, autopsy shows that he had severe heart disease. Now, then the issue becomes, uh, what did, did he die of the blow on the top of that? No, that, that was very, no brain damage, no skull fracture. That was not a cause of death. It was the heart disease that caused the death. The next question is, well, did that blow, did the frightening, frightening him trigger off a, uh, a cardiac arrhythmia in somebody who was, who was, uh, had heart disease? That becomes a real issue because death from a cardiac uh, arrhythmia, an arrhythmia, a ventricular tachycardia, for example, in somebody who has pre-existing severe coronary artery disease can be triggered by physical or emotional exertion, like the person running after the bus who collapses and dies because he has severe, in the cold weather, has severe coronary artery disease. The cause of death is still natural heart disease running after a bus. But if that same person has just been held up by a, a felony and runs after the guy who held him up and collapses and dies, it's still heart disease, but occurred during a felony, so it could be considered a homicide. You see, uh, th and that actually happens where people die during uh, homicidal, uh, not homicidal, during robberies. And uh, if the robbery triggers off a fatal arrhythmia, that would be considered a homicide, even though the, the death itself is, is natural, uh, because it was triggered off by a criminal act. act. So, Dr. Badenden, could the same be true for kind of what we're experiencing with COVID and the pandemic? Because COVID is being used quite a bit right now on death certificates. Yeah, but COVID is a natural condition. Okay. Natural okay. condition. So the COVID, since you brought up this delicate thing. I'm sitting where I am in this beautiful 32 degree cold in upstate New York is because I'm a target of COVID. I'm old enough to, to be in, the, in that group that if I got COVID, I, I could be in bad shape. So I'm sheltering up here. Now, if I got COVID, uh, I may have pre-existing heart disease that it can aggravate, but the, the COVID would be the cause of death. Okay. Uh, however, uh, I would do the best I can to avoid uh, getting COVID for that very reason. If if I were your age, you know, young person, and got COVID, I don't COVID, want it. I don't. I'm I, good. I don't want to get it. I, I mean, the cure rate for COVID is, is you know ninety nine percent. 
because uh, for, for young, healthy people, it will be uh, 99.5%. You'd, you'd survive. But it, it'd be older for me because I have pre-existing conditions. So that would be the same for any of your clients, their pre-existing conditions. And maybe if they see an issue could come up, if they started having arrhythmia and went off the road and hit a tree, uh, they couldn't possibly recover. But the idea was, supposing they stopped the car and they're there with an arrhythmia, and some people could recover from an arrhythmia. You know, some people can recover from a heart attack, uh, the first heart attack. And uh, one can have various investigations and arguments about whether or not the death would have occurred if he went straight to a hospital instead of going off the road. But it all comes back, comes with uh, the pre-existing condition being there. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Now, may I ask you something? May I ask you a question? Yes. Well, I've been involved a few times with people who sign up for insurance mm-hmm. who lie on their insurance as to whether they've had pre-existing diseases. And we do an autopsy and we find that there are pre-existing conditions that he was being treated for. He has a stent in his coronary artery, but he never said anything about that. Okay. Uh, uh, does that ever come up in your business as to whether or not there was uh, a fraud on the um, uh, on the uh, application? Yes, falsification can falsification of pre-existing injury or pre-existing any type of conditions can make some of those contracts null and void. Yeah, so th- that also can be found at autopsy. You see, uh, as, as to as to whether or not. Well, whether there were pre-existing conditions, absolutely we find an autopsy. Whether or not the individual knew about it is something else. So that uh, if he's been operated upon for uh, coronary artery disease, would know about it. Uh, If he had a cancer of the pancreas, he might not know about it. That That would be, again, something that could be found out in getting prior medical history. The prior medical history can tell a lot about what illnesses the individual knew about and was being treated for. So then I'm going to random. This is going to be very an interesting question. But so can you? So let's say I I die. Can I have something like in my will that that mandates that I have an autopsy performed on me, or is that always up to the family? Uh, I might be a little more. Yeah, <laughs> people have no, no, no. People have in their will that they want their, their body to be donated to science or they may oh, sure. want uh, their eyes to be donated, yeah. you know, the, the special thing. All those are very good, but as far as I, I'm not a lawyer, as I understand, not binding on the next of kin. Okay. Next of kin owns that body. Now, the next of kin may feel that, well, if my brother wanted his eyes donated, I'm going to donate his eyes. But he doesn't have to do that. It's up to the next of kin to make a decision what to do. Uh, and these um, uh, things that are uh, signed on the on the backs of the uh, vehicular licenses and stuff like that as the donating parts of the body and all uh, yeah. can can be a um, uh, an, an issue that uh, that's what 
he or she would have wanted, but it's not up to that that document. It's up to the next of kin to whether to recognize it or not. Okay, so then would, is there ever a need to do an autopsy if there is someone who is um, an organ donor? Because usually it's a brain dead that creates the necessity or the option or the opportunity for somebody to donate their organs. But would you ever do an autopsy with someone who is going down that road? Well, uh, it, it can be done. An autopsy can be done in an organ donor. Okay. But but not necessarily. This is this became in the initial organ donor situation uh, when organ donors. Uh, it, it's only since the past uh, 40, 50 years where organs can be donated, and and, and well, one of the big issues had to do with that the medical examiner or coroner had to approve the organ donation to be sure that the organ donation won't interfere with the criminal trial that's going to come up against uh, whoever done the murder cases. As you point out, uh, the murder cases in which, say, somebody is shot in the head, uh, dies because of a gunshot wound to the head or being struck in the head with a baseball bat, he's dead. It's a homicide. The medical examiner currently gets it. The um, coroner, a medical examiner in the old days, had to say, well, you can take the heart or the liver because that's not going to interfere with my determination of the cause of death, which I have to testify to at a trial, you know, down the line. Uh, now, the medical examiners don't have as much authority as they used to in the old days because it's, it's not as significant for various reasons. But... Um, no, they, one can uh, donate an organ and not have an autopsy if, okay. uh, if, the, if the death is from natural causes. Okay. If, if uh, somebody has a, uh, dies of a ruptured myocardial infarction um, and he donates his kidneys, uh, they can take the kidneys and not require an autopsy to be done. Okay. If, on the other hand, he dies in an auto accident, then uh, you can do both. Interesting. Awesome. Thank you for answering this. So fun fact for our listeners, I've actually had a cornea transplant myself and uh, am very grateful to the donor for that. So uh, not exactly on topic, but if you aren't a donor, consider it. You could change somebody's life. So I was losing vision in my right eye altogether. And uh, if it wasn't for that, um, I wouldn't be able to see out of it anymore. So that, that, that is interesting. And it works. That those are, but you not only have to be grateful to the donor, uh, because the eye tissue and the corneas and all, are, um, they stay viable for 24, 48 hours after death. See, that's why they become medical examiner cases. If you're donating a heart, it has to be done in a hospital. You have to, you can't uh, take a dead person and then take his heart because the dead heart. But uh, the, the uh, eyes, the bone, can uh, skin can be used from dead people, from medical examiner people. Not only have to be grateful for the donor who's dead, but also from the donor's next of kin who. Uh, uh, followed uh, the the wishes of, of of the decedent, but didn't have to legally. He didn't ha- uh, he or she didn't have to. So That's a really good point. The cornea uh, transplant was the first was the beginning of the whole donor uh, ability to save lives by donating organs. 
I didn't know that. That's fascinating. And well, we, Greg is the recipient. I know, right? So we have really enjoyed our time with you, Dr. Bond, and um, I could have we could probably have talked for two more hours, oh, but we, sure. we want to value your time. But we really appreciate our discussion today, and uh, just want to say thank you again for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you both. We want to thank Cameron Runyon for his excellent intro music. If you are interested in adding some music to your life, please feel free to contact him. We will provide his information in our show notes. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for future episodes releasing every two weeks on Monday. Thanks again, and happy listening.